So we went and got all this space, Andrew, and literally took our overhead from about $2,000 a month to quickly $14,000 a month. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I will be your worst podcast host today. And I'm here with featured guest, Patrice Washington. Patrice, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. In 2020, Success Magazine named Patrice Washington one of 12 inspiring black voices in personal development as an award-winning author, transformational speaker, hope-restoring coach. I love that, man. And media personality, Patrice is committed to redefining the term wealth using its original meaning, well-being. Patrice got her start as your favorite personal finance expert, America's money maven, but has since expanded her brand and mission to encourage women to chase purpose, not money, and use her certification in financial psychology to help the masses get beyond budgets and credit reports and dive into the heart of why we behave the way we do with our money. She encourages women to have wealth in all aspects of their lives by pursuing their purpose, being fulfilled and earning more without ever chasing money. Through her teachings, Patrice empowers women to look at life through the lens of abundance and opportunity instead of lack and scarcity. As host of the Redefining Wealth podcast, Patrice has built a thriving international community of high-achieving women committed to creating a powerful life vision in their careers, home, health, and personal finances. Featured on Forbes and as one of 15 inspiring podcast for professionals of every stripe and highlighted by Entrepreneur Magazine. The Redefining Wealth podcast boasts over 2 million downloads and counting. Patrice, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. I feel like you said it all. <laughs> that was a mouthful. But other than that, I'm a wife and a mother and a woman that is really, if you couldn't tell from that, just really passionate about helping people learn from the lessons that I've learned by doing it right and doing it very wrong. Yeah, somehow it really did come through in that bio. <laughs> so I love that passion and the mission. You know, the mission is, is fantastic. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, I was 19 years old when I was introduced to personal finance. It was because I got licensed as a real estate agent in California and quickly fell in love with the industry, the flexibility. So during my senior year in college at USC, University of Southern California, I got my broker's license and became a real estate and mortgage broker during senior year. And that business quickly took off and became a seven-figure business by the time I was 25 years old. And I thought that I was on top of the world. My now husband and then boyfriend, we were driving matching Range Rovers and we owned almost 13 pieces of property collectively. And we had all these things going on. We had 16 loan officers and real estate agents on our roster. And we thought that like we ran the world and it was a beautiful time. And so we thought around 2006 
that it would be a great idea to go from our kind of co-working space, if you will, those were kind of coming on the scene to getting a larger office, which we fully furnished, built out almost 2,000 square feet for these real estate agents and loan officers whose jobs were technically to be in the street closing deals at that time. But we thought, because we listened <laughs> to them, oh, if I had some place to sit, oh, my computer at home doesn't work, oh, I need desk space, I need a good quality phone. So we went and got all this space, Andrew, and literally took our overhead from about $2,000 a month to quickly $14,000 a month. And that was 2006. Well, we know what started in 2007. In 2007, the recession was starting to rear its ugly head. People were talking about and murmuring about this bubble bursting. And I remember walking down the hallway to my office one day and some of the other mortgage brokers in our building were talking about giving up their office space. And I thought, and they were older than me. They had been in business so much longer. Here I am about 24, 25 years old. And, you know, they're like out. They're going to work from home. And I'm like, I'm so sorry for them. <laughs> like, we're doing so well. Why would they close their office down? Oh, that sucks for them. Well, what I didn't realize is that they were paying attention. They were looking at the signs. They were analyzing what was going on in the marketplace. And we were foolishly like spending money on more and more property and over leveraging ourselves because we could get approved to do so. And even though we had some savings in 2007, early 2007, I was actually pregnant and I took a fall down the stairs in my home. And that sent me into preterm labor at 20 weeks pregnant. And so I know you're a guy, Andrew, but you know that 20 weeks pregnant, that's scary, right? Very. I got to the emergency room at Cedar sinai in Beverly Hills, California. And they said, ma'am, I'm sorry, this baby is coming any minute now. And I was in that emergency room in tears doing the only thing I knew to do at the time, which was pray and call other people and just beg them to pray. And what was supposed to be any minute now actually turned into me being admitted. And the contraction slowed down, the labor slowed down, and they said, well, every minute that she can stay in there baking, the better for both of you. And so I was admitted to the hospital and actually ended up there for several weeks. Five weeks into my hospital bed rest, I am in the bed watching the news and they are talking about the very banks that I work with every day closing down left and right. Every day, it just got a little bit worse. Every day, my team members were calling, freaking out, Patrice, help me save my deal. Like my client is gonna get their deposit taken. This just fell out of escrow. These people were upset, they're irate, and everyone was so used to me being the fixer. Like I could, you know, repackage something and get it, get the deal done somewhere else. I was like queen of the deal maker, you know? But I couldn't even go to the restroom by myself. I couldn't even do anything to help myself in that moment. And I wore this belt around my waist 24 seven that would monitor the baby's vitals. And I will never forget the day that my doctor, Dr. Lee, came into that room and said, Patrice, I don't know what you're stressing about, 
But if you don't stop, you're going to leave here two years in a row with no baby. Because the year before I actually had a son who passed away prematurely after five hours in my arms. Same hospital, same doctor, same floor. And I had to make a decision to surrender, right? Like to just, I can't do anything else. And so my husband and I made a decision to tell the team, you can't call me, don't call me, I can't help you, do the best that you can. And it got to the point where I actually had the maintenance people come in and take that TV off the wall because watching it over and over again was just not helping. And so it would be another several weeks that I stayed in the hospital. I ended up there 10 weeks. My daughter was born at 30 weeks, only three pounds, but she survived. She just turned 13 a few weeks ago. Yeah, she just turned 13 a few weeks ago. But all that time that I was in the hospital, 10 weeks, and my daughter in the NICU three and a half weeks, If we closed two deals during that entire ordeal, it would have been a miracle. And so what was easy for us to just pay and take care of just several months before, now I have this overhead and no one coming into the office, no one closing deals on top of the property that I owned where my tenants were losing their jobs and not paying rent. And I went very quickly from a couple hundred thousand dollars that I had saved, which is a young girl from South Central Los Angeles, I thought I had done what I was supposed to do. We exhausted it within a year. But when I look back at that time, Andrew, one of the things that I realized is that I had to take personal responsibility for some of the choices that I made. And I know in hindsight, when we look back and we thought about it, our top two or three producers at that time never came in the office. They never needed to come in the office. They didn't care about a desk and a phone there. They were out doing their thing, doing their job. And we made a very big commitment because this was a three-year lease. We made a very big commitment based on the chatter of the weakest performers on our team. Mm. And boy... When everything hit the fan, where do you think they were? Nowhere in sight. They were nowhere to be seen. And that was one of the greatest lessons, you know, for me as an entrepreneur is to not get caught up in the pretty Mm. and what looks good and what looks like money, what looks like wealth. Like we were more concerned with making it look big than actually really getting into the nitty gritty of the numbers and what we could sustain even on our worst month. We didn't plan for a worst month. We thought it would be roses and rainbows forever. And boy, were we wrong. So that really leads into the next question, which is, you know, what lessons did you learn? So this first lesson about, you know, don't get caught up in the pretty, which I, I love the way you phrased that. What else did you learn from this experience? I learned to really know my numbers. Like I said, I didn't, at that time, understand that as an entrepreneur, I'd have to be prepared for the bad months. You know, that time real estate was booming. And in my mind, it went up every month from the time I started. It just got better and better. There wasn't even a thought in my mind that it could ever come down. And to not prepare as an entrepreneur for that, for, for the bad months, for when it's not, when you're not gonna close $100,000 worth of deals, 
then what? You should be planning your personal and professional life, not based on your top months, but based on your worst months. <laughs> the top months are like gravy, right? But you should be planning and preparing for the bad months. That's, what the, that's what the business and personal budget should be based on. Well, it's a great reminder too. I mean, you know, that we're facing such a difficult time these days and, you know, everybody's been talking for years about, you know, have a cash reserve for four months, you know, a worth of cash and all of those things. But truthfully, it's hard as hell to get to that point. And there's only a small number of people that are really there. But those people that did prioritize that can feel a little bit better in this, you know, awful time. Well, right. Let me summarize some of the things that I took away. I, I wrote down a lot of stuff, but you know, one of the things I wanted to mention was this idea is you know, to run a business, it can't just be sales. Sales is a function within a business, just like finance is a function, just like accounting is a function, just like marketing is a function. So when you decide to run your business and you're great at finance or you're great at sales or whatever, just remember that that's one function within a business you've got to do all the other functions, unfortunately. And of course, you don't have to do it, but make sure you have good people around you that are doing those other functions. The second thing is that, you know, one of the things after now almost 30 years in the world of finance is that I've definitely learned, and I, my, actually my PhD dissertation was on the concept of the performance of financial analysts and what is their forecasting ability. And the truth is financial analysts are the people that cover the companies. They know the most about the industries, the companies that they cover, and the number is 25%. So what I mean by that is that analysts forecasted that companies would earn 125, but the companies actually only earned 100. And they were just consistently wrong across the whole world and across time. So even, even great analysts, including myself and others who are doing it every day, are constantly wrong about predicting the future. So what I learned from all of that was the idea that you have to know where you are. And that's part of what's missing when you're young and you're starting a business is that you don't necessarily know where you are in the cycle. And the best way to explain this is the idea is that let's just say you go to visit a friend in London and you say, hey, look, I just arrived and the taxi dropped me off somewhere and uh, I wanna come see you, you know, how do I get there? And your friend says, well, where are you? And you say, I don't know. I mean, I'm looking, can you see anything around? No, I don't really see any names or anything, but just tell me where, how to get there. Well, you can't tell someone how to get to someplace if you don't know where they are. So a lot more of my time is spent trying to understand where we are in the economic cycle, where we are in the profitability cycle. And that allows you to start to prepare for what could be coming. And the other thing that I heard from you, which has, you know, such an interesting point is this idea of, you know, listening to your employees. Now, who in their right mind, Patrice, would ever say, don't listen to your employees? Nobody's going to say that. <laughs> but yet what you demonstrated is that, and you, you called it chatter. And, you know, I think that this is something that we learn not only in the area of listening to employees, we also know about it from listening to customers that sometimes you do focus groups and you get misinformation. And so it's very important to stay in touch with different, you know, with your employees and with your customers and all that. But you have to remember that they may not necessarily be giving the final, you know, the best advice about what you should be doing. So listening to your customers, listening to your employees is one input in your decision-making process. And the last thing is the idea of surrender to win. I remember this, you know, I, I 
I basically tried to kill myself when I was 17 years old. And I went into three different rehabs to get through addiction to drugs and alcohol and all of that. And, you know, I can remember that my parents, my, I went through my first rehab, which was in Minnesota. I was 16. And when I got out four days later, I was getting high. It didn't work. And then I ran away and I was turned 17 and I somehow got in touch with my parents and I talked to them and my, I said, look, I'm going to live on my own. And my mom said, no, you're not. You know, we have called the police and they're going to find you. And when they do, you're going to get one more chance to go to rehab. And sure enough, the police found me. They arrested me. They put me in a halfway house in Akron, Ohio. And I was there and my mom said, you know, my dad said that I'm going to bring you home the night before you're going to go to this treatment. You're going to basically get into, you know, your bed, go to sleep. I'm going to be like sleeping outside your door so you don't like run away. And then in the morning, I'm going to take you to the Akron bus station. This was 1982. I'm going to take you to the bus station. I'm going to give you just enough money for a little bit of food and a bus trip down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And when you get down there, you got to walk to, you know, you got to get to the hospital. I got to the hospital eventually after a long, you know, drug-induced ride, basically. And I got to the hospital and they said to me, they said that, you know, you've got one week in this evaluation unit. And if you don't make it, if we don't think you're going to make it into treatment, we're going to tell you that you're not going to be accepted into the treatment program. And I knew that if that was going to happen, I would be out on the streets of Baton Rouge. And for a skinny little boy from Cleveland, Ohio, it was not going to be a pretty sight with nothing. And I knew my parents gave me a one-way ticket and they weren't negotiating. So on the seventh, on the, the night of the sixth day, the counselors got together with me and they said, bad news, we're not going to accept you. And I didn't know why, because I had said all the right things. I had done everything the right way, I thought. The only thing I could do is go back into my room, and I had a roommate there, and I went into the bathroom, I closed the door, and I fell to my knees, and I sobbed, and I sobbed. And all I could think about at that moment was the idea that I don't know what to do anymore. I just don't, everything I've done has gotten me here. I didn't have faith in anything, you know, a God or anything, but all I could understand at that moment was I was not God myself and I had to surrender. And it was that day that marks my sobriety date in 1982 till today. And I think about what you're talking about is sometimes we have to surrender to win. Do you have any thoughts? Oh, I'm, just, I'm just blown away by your story. And I remember my own bathroom floor moment because that decision and many others leading up to the point that I shared by the time it was all said and done, we lost everything within about a 15 month period. We lost everything, went from, you know, the 6,000 square foot home in Southern California to living in a 600 square foot teeny tiny apartment, also in Louisiana, in Metairie, Louisiana. And it was in the bathroom that I finally had what I call like a come to Jesus moment where I bawled, snotted, and just did the ugliest cry you have ever seen and got in fetal position on the floor and said, I can't take this anymore. Like I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so just imagining you in that bathroom and thinking of my own bathroom floor experience, you know, I'm also very grateful for that moment that, that I had that breaking point because it also was the catalyst for my breakthrough. 
And it was the wake up call that I needed. And although I, I was not addicted to substance, any substance in particular, but I was addicted to achievement, which meant I was just used to going after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing to say I did because it provided validation, but I wasn't really in touch and with who I really was and what my purpose was. Mm. And that moment is what has brought me here. It's been over 10 years now. And I'm just in the moment, every time I think about it, and I'm sure you do too, when you, when you go back in your mind and think about how broken you were in that moment, but to know that it was the beginning of something beautiful. And this is why I'm not just a hope restoring coach. You are too, because mm. that story gave me just goosebumps and I'm grateful to just have an opportunity to hear it and know that so much purpose can come out of those very painful times. Yeah, and given the, the times that we're all facing right now, I want to continue on a little bit on that because I think it can provide a lesson. And that is when I finally made it through, the, I, they ended up accepting me into, they, they may have played some trick on me or something, but they mm -hmm. basically, they got me to surrender and I did. And they, they accepted me in the next day, you know, and I went through that treatment center and then they said, they wanted me to go to a long-term treatment center for seven months, which I did in Ohio near where my parents live. And I really got the 12 steps in that case. I got clean and sober and I really, really, really took to it. And then I graduated from that treatment center. And when I was 18, I, I was 17. I was just graduating. The day I left that treatment center, I went, went to my high school graduation. So I hadn't been in school the whole year. I'd homeschooled from the, from the treatment center. And then after that, my mom basically said, well, congratulations, you know, you've done it. You've six weeks before you turn 18. And I just wanted to tell you that you're going to have to move out when you're 18. And I just thought, man, you know, I just made it. I just made it. And now she's asking me to move out. And this is why I admire my mom a lot because she knew I could handle it. So I, I went out and I moved out and I moved into a place in Kent, Ohio, near Kent state. And I had no money. I had a job working at a factory. I had a little moped that I had and I rode that moped for an hour a day to the factory, an hour back from the factory. And sometimes I'd had to go to the church and I'd borrow food. Like I'd get uh, food, canned, canned food. Mm -hmm. I went on food stamps for a little while also because I just didn't have much money. But every night I went out with my friends and we went to the, you know, 12 step meetings, AA meetings and stuff like that. And I was so happy. And what I realized at that moment in time that as I could, I could be, if I had my mind right, I could be stripped of everything and be happy. And then when the 1997 crisis happened, Thailand was the center of the Asian financial crisis. And my best friend and I had set up a factory, you know, we invested a lot of money and all of a sudden the whole world started collapsing in and everything fell apart. And we moved into the factory. We we're sitting in the factory. It was a Sunday, 1998, August. It was a rainy day. We're in the only room in the factory that has air conditioning. There's no employees there. It's just dead quiet. We're terrified of what's happening in our lives. And my sister calls and says, my cancer has come back. Please come home as fast as possible. I've got a month to live. When I hung up that phone, Dale and I just cried. I just like, you know, my best friend and I just cried. But, but I had the memory of having lost everything and still having happiness. So I want to wrap up this little story by saying to the listeners out there, you may lose everything right now but you don't have to lose your soul. You can have happiness and satisfaction without 
money. And so that's a lesson that I take away from that whole experience of mine. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I love it. I love it. And it's so much of what we teach at Redefining Wealth, you know, that the original 12th century definition of wealth was not money and material possessions. It was actually well-being, the condition of well-being. And so I want to help people on their journey to wealth, but more than anything, I want them to be well in season and out of season. In season and out of season, we still have to be well in our mind, body, spirit, because one thing about it, if you're well in those areas, you will always make decisions, the right decisions that'll get you right back to that result. It'll be definitely temporary. It doesn't have to be permanent at all. Beautiful. Well, based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the fate, this same fate? What I'm thinking about is that that young man or woman out there who has gotten some success, they build up their little business, they're young. What advice would you give them? I would say don't listen to the chatter. <laughs> Make decisions rooted in the numbers and the data and really looking at the bigger picture and think about life beyond today. Just think about life beyond today. I know as a young person, we think it's for the old people to think, <laughs> to think three, five, 10 years away. I know I did when I was that age, but if you're a young person or anyone really, it's really just to think beyond today. There's a bigger picture here at play and it's not always based on what you even see or how you feel today, right? Like. You never know what's coming around the corner and we want to be ready. We want to stay ready. We don't want to get ready. I'd rather have an inconvenience than allow a poor decision to create a crisis in my life. So maybe buy one of those oldies that's closing down his office, a cup of coffee and see why. <laughs> well, Absolutely. I, I, I wrote something down also when you were talking and when you were in the hospital and that is slow down. Mm -hmm. You can slow down, you know, and take a step back. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My number one goal for the next 12 months. My number one goal for the next 12 months, I would have to say, is to just really rest in a spirit of contentment. Like, it's, I'm not in a place where I want to force anything in particular. I'm very much still in a place of surrender. And sometimes I have to remind myself, dear Patrice, surrender today. <laughs> you know, I have it written on my wall that this is a time where we want to be proactive, but we also want to go with the flow and just be aware and be listening. So my goal is to just be present to everything that's going on and make decisions rooted in faith, not fear. Beautiful. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Patrice, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, and I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. I say brave because when I ask most people to come on the show, they say, no, Andrew, I'd prefer to talk about my winners. But you have now turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Keep chasing purpose, not money, and redefine wealth for yourself. Beautiful. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host, saying, I'll see you on the upside.